And a warm-hearted good morning. Welcome to our Brunkpunt Studios, where we tackle contentious issues that affect our Christian world on a daily basis. The topic for discussion this morning, a world in crisis. Our fallen world needs changing. It's beyond question. When our newspapers and film glamorizes immorality, undermine the family and encourage entitlement, selfishness, greed, and lust. When criminals escape justice by legal technicalities, when half of the world suffers under totalitarianism, dictatorship, and persecution, when pornography and perversion and abortions are on the increase, then we know that this world's need to be changed and we as Christians have an obligation and a mandate to fulfill according to God's word. The 1st of February 2023 marks 26 years of the legalization of abortion in our country. And this morning, we're bringing you a different perspective on the very controversial topic of abortion as we share an interview that Lila Rose did with a Dr. Anthony Laventino, a former abortionist. And then we'll be speaking to Melissa Hertz, who had an abortion herself at the tender age of 14. Please note that the content in this discussion is age-sensitive and not appropriate for children younger than the age of 13. Also note that the respondent's opinions does not necessarily reflect that of the opinions of Radio Pulpit or the announcer on duty. Don't stay or go away, as we'll be back with our respondents right after this. My name is Lila Rose, and I'm the president of Live Action. Dr. Levitino is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist from Las Cruces, New Mexico. Dr. Levitino is here with us to share his powerful story of his transformation from a doctor who performed over 1,200 abortions to now a leading pro-life advocate. Dr. Levitino, thank you for being with us. I'm happy to be here, Lila. Can you tell me why you first were performing abortions? I graduated from medical school in 1976 in upstate New York, and if you asked me at the time how I felt about the abortion issue, I wouldn't have hesitated for a minute to tell you that I was pro-choice. This was a choice between a doctor, that female patient, and no one, including the baby's father, really had anything to say about it. When you're an obstetrician-gynecologist and you say you're pro-choice, it becomes a very personal decision. You have to decide whether you're going to actually do abortions. So along with learning how to do deliveries, hysterectomies, and everything else obstetrician-gynecologists do, I learned to do abortions. So you saw it as a part of your practice? Absolutely. During the time of performing abortions, did you ever have any doubts? The first doubts that I had about doing abortions happened during my residency training. When we were doing first trimester suction DNC abortions, interestingly enough, in the delivery room, and I, you know, when it was my turn to do them, I would two, do two, three, four in the morning, never thought anything of it. And we were doing late-term abortions in the form of saline abortions at the time. Technology was different. I met my wife, and we married, and like a lot of young couples, we wanted to have children. And found out very quickly that we had an infertility problem and that she just wasn't getting pregnant. Uh, she went to the best infertility specialist in town, and it didn't look like we were going to be able to have children of our own. So after we got over that shock, we decided to adopt a child. Now, anyone who's tried to do that knows how very difficult that is. We went to county agencies, state agencies, religious agencies, anyone we could think of to find a child to adopt and care for as our own. It was during that time that 
we were trying to adopt a child that I had my first doubts. They were strictly selfish ones, but they were there. I remember literally, I, I very vividly remember being in the delivery room one day doing a suction DNC abortion and thinking, you know, my gosh, I'm throwing this kid in the garbage, you know, and here I am trying to adopt a baby, yet I'm throwing them away. And, and I'm smart enough to know it's people like me that makes adoption so difficult in the first place. So the initial doubts that I had were very selfish ones, but they were there. What did you do when, you, when those doubts came and you were searching to overcome the infertility and find a child to adopt? What did you do to kind of put away those doubts when you were performing abortion? Soldiered on, kept on doing my job, and at the same time tried very hard to find a baby to adopt. We literally started to advertise. I talked to every obstetrician gynecologist in town and people at the hospital and everywhere else and let them know that we were looking for a child to adopt. In August of 1978, um, I, was, I remember very vividly, I was working in the operating room with one of the attending physicians, and the circulating nurse tapped me on the shoulder, and when I turned around, she was holding up a little piece of paper that said, Call Marsha as soon as you're done. Now, Marsha was the head of social services at the hospital where I was working, and she's one of the people we had talked to. That's all the note said, but I knew what it was. And sure enough, she informed me that there was a 15-year-old girl in labor in the delivery room. She had showed up at a doctor's office for the first time during her pregnancy the day before. Now she was in labor. She wants to give her baby up for adoption. Are you interested? Amazing. She told me over the phone. And I was <laughs> like, well, of course I'm interested. I remember <laughs> literally staring at the face of that telephone to call my wife with this news and know that I was just seven digits away from becoming a father. Beautiful. And literally, by the grace of God, we were able to adopt a little girl that we named Heather in August of 1978. And my wife got pregnant the very next month. And we had <laughs> two, two children. <laughs> exactly. We ended up with two children, a son and a daughter. They were literally, they were 10 months apart. Our son, Sean, was born in July 1979. Can you share more? You've, you've adopted Heather and the events that led to that transformation where you ultimately completely rejected abortion. What was it that really changed your perspective? I was doing abortions on a regular basis in my practice and everything was just, you know, the kids are growing and I'm starting to make some money finally and everything was just wonderful as far as I was concerned until June 23rd of 1984. June 23rd, 1984 was an absolutely beautiful day in Albany. Uh, Heather was exactly two months away from her sixth birthday. We took the kids to an amusement park that day, came home, we had dinner together, and the kids were playing in the backyard when we had friends arrive for cake and coffee. It was, we were talking with those friends when at 7.25 that night we heard the screech of brakes out in front of our house. The kids had wandered into the road and Heather had been hit by a car. She was a mess. Um, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to be able to save people's lives. My wife was an intensive care nurse at the time. This is what we did for a living. This was routine to us. But it made absolutely no difference, and she literally died in our arms in the back of an ambulance that night. You know, people who are listening who have children may think they have some idea of what that feels like. I guarantee you, if you haven't been through that yourself, you have no idea what it feels like. I pray you never find out. But what do you do after a, a disaster? You, know, you bury your child and take some time off, and, and then you try to get back into your life. And I don't remember exactly how long it was after Heather died that I did my first D&E abortion, but I showed up at OR number 9 at Albany Medical Center just like I had over 100 times before. 
I wasn't thinking of this as anything special. This was routine to me, and I obviously had other things on my mind. And I started that abortion, put in what's called a sofa clamp, and literally ripped out a baby's arm or leg that big, and I just stared at it in the clamp. I got sick. I mean, I literally got sick. But when you start an abortion, you can't stop. When you do a D&E abortion, you have to keep inventory. You have to make sure you get two arms and two legs and all the pieces. Because if you don't, your patient's going to come back infected, bleeding, or dead. So I finished that abortion. I soldiered on and got it done. But I looked. I really, for the first time in my career, really looked at that pile of baby parts sitting on a table. And... I didn't see all those things that had sustained me all those years. I didn't see what a wonderful doctor I was helping her with her problem, and I didn't see her wonderful right to choose, and I didn't even see the $800 cash I just made in 15 minutes. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And suddenly this was looking really different to me. For the first time in my life, it hit me very powerfully that this woman had come to me figuratively, not literally, no woman ever literally says this, but figuratively she came to me and said, here's $800, kill my baby. And I was the kind of person that would look right back at her perfectly calmly and say, why, sure, I'll do that. After having that encounter and seeing that child and seeing it as a child, what was the process like to stop advertising for abortion? Well, I didn't stop right away. I did a couple more, but these were just... I mean, I knew why I felt bad. I will get over this, but I didn't. Um, a change had come that I couldn't take back. So you tried to do a couple more to see, maybe I can get over this, but you couldn't. Exactly. So I went to my partners, and I announced that I would no longer do second trimester d &E abortions. They were just too difficult. And there were just two of us in the group that were doing them, so and this dumped the entire load on the other partner. But they knew what was going on. They understood. And I told them I would only do the little ones, the first trimester suction DNC abortions we were doing in the office. And for a couple more months, I soldiered on doing those. But a change, as I said earlier, had come that I couldn't take back. When you finally figure out that killing a baby that big for money is wrong, that it doesn't take you too long to figure out it doesn't matter if the baby is this big or this big or this big or maybe even this big, it's all the same. And I'm ashamed to say it, but it was February of 1985, it was that late after Heather's death, that I went to my partners a second time and said, I will no longer do any more abortions. And I haven't done any since then, and I never will. While you were practicing as an abortion doctor, while you were performing abortions, did you ever come across pro-lifers, and what was your perspective on, on pro-lifers? <laughs> people always ask that. Now, understand, as I tell people, I was not running an abortion clinic. I was running a regular OBGYN office like most women have gone to. We did deliveries, we did hysterectomies. Abortion certainly was a part of our practice. And it was during those, those, those three years before I stopped doing abortions in that private practice that I arrived at my office one day and there were picketers surrounding our buildings, praying, holding their signs. They didn't have our names on the signs, but we knew they were there for us. And people frequently ask me, what are you thinking when we're outside picketing? And I would tell them what we were thinking, what you're thinking when you're in that situation. It gave us a siege mentality. It was us against those kooks outside. Mm. And you, when you saw folks outside, wh where did you get the stereotype that they were kooks? 
Um, oh, everybody in the pro-abortion, you know, every every abortionist knows that everyone, you know, involved in the pro-life movement is a kook. And CNN tells me so. I wouldn't. They would never lie to me. <laughs> Do you remember any of kind of uh, exchanges that you had with oh, pro-life I advocates? remember very vividly an exchange, but it didn't happen quite the way you might imagine. Um, it was during that time when a woman came to me as a new patient. Her name was Susan. Didn't even come up to my shoulders. Came in for a routine OBGYN appointment, you know, OBGYN annual exam and a pap smear. Did her exam, and then at the end of the exam, she looked at me and said, can I talk to you? Now, doctors know that many patients, I think especially women, won't really tell you what's on their mind until they've established some level of trust. Mm -hmm. And so it, it wasn't all that unusual that she did that. And so I, I sat down in my office and looked at her and professionally looked at her and said, ma'am, how can I help you? And she absolutely blew me away when she said, I've been here, I've been sent here to give you a message that Jesus loves you. He cares about you. This is not what he had intended for your life to be an abortionist. Please stop. Now, I had a one overwhelming thought when she said that, and that was, I've got to hustle this kook out of my office as fast as I could, and I did. A year later, she showed up for her routine annual exam in pap smear, and when the exam was over, she said, can I talk to you? And I went, oh, no. You know, now, understand, it's not like I never darkened the inside of a church before, but people who were really demonstrative mm -hmm. about their faith really made me uncomfortable. And she basically said the same message, more or less, I've been sent here to give you a message that Jesus loves you. He cares about you. This is not what he intended for your life to be an abortionist. Please stop. Now, believe me, I remembered what she had said the year before. But in the intervening year between those two visits, I received at least three personal greeting cards sent to the office to me, marked confidential, with the message written on the card. One time during that intervening year I arrived in my office and there was a plate of brownies sitting on my desk with the message tied to the brownies. You know, it's, it's funny, I, 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 I wouldn't have put a name or a, a title to what was had going on, but um, Joe Scheidler of the Pro-Life Action League, who's written several books, calls that adopting an abortionist. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly what this woman did. Now, it's really interesting. It was not till much later that I realized, that I found out, that she was one of the people picketing my office. You know, and I have a message for people, especially for women. You know, oh, Dr. X does abortions. I would never go to him. Well, you know, you're never going to change somebody's mind by, you can pick it all you want. You may or may not change somebody's mind that way, but I will suggest to you that most of the time you won't. And you can yell at someone and scream at them, but I can absolutely tell you you will not convince their mind about anything that way. Mm. If you're going to convince somebody that maybe the path they're, you know, they're, they're walking is wrong, you need a relationship with that person of some sort to be able to start that dialogue. This lady was very clever. She became a patient. Believe me, doctors listen to their patients. And uh, definitely a message to women who are pro-life that maybe that doctor that is performing abortions is, a, is one to go talk to. Exactly. Dr. Levitino, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Back in the program called Brandpunt, Melissa Hertz, good morning to you and welcome. Just in a nutshell, your background, bio, and where you're from, please. I'm Melissa Hertz, and I'm currently staying in Durban, originally from Cape Town, where I started an organization called Project Life Pro-Life South Africa that has existed for about three years now. I'm very, very passionate about the pro-life movement and about 
preventing abortion and preventing baby abandonment as well in South Africa. The reason for this that I'm so passionate about this is because of my own testimony of the journey that I've had and how God has helped me overcome the pain and the heartache of having an abortion because I had an abortion when I was 14 years old. So I know firsthand the negative psychological and emotional effects that it has on a woman. But God used this for his glory. And what was my heartache um, has now become my testimony for his glory because now I'm able to share my testimony about how God healed my heart and just the amazing things that he's done in my life and the opportunities that he's given me to share my testimony. I had a radical encounter with Jesus on the night that I tried to commit suicide and I tried to commit suicide because of the shame and the pain and regret that I felt because of the abortion. So it was a radical encounter that really it transformed my life in such a big way that I can never go back. So that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Melissa, to somebody listening to this program, indeed, you've gone through the whole process of, at the age of 14, undergoing an abortion. Uh, why should I not have an abortion? There are many, many reasons why you shouldn't have an abortion. But if you had to break it down into three categories, there's the emotional and psychological components, there's the spiritual components, and then there's the physical component. So like the mind, body, spirit kind of components of it. Um, and when it comes to engaging with people who are non-Christian, the scientific way is the best way to engage with them, to try and you know, just encourage them to, to choose life for their baby. And science shows us that life does begin at conception. And there are many studies that you can find where it shows that life begins at conception. A baby doesn't suddenly become a baby at three months or six months or nine months. A baby is a baby right from the beginning. So the reason I would say physically why a woman shouldn't have an abortion is because of the negative physical effects that abortion has on a woman. So if the abortion is done wrong or if the abortion is done as a backstreet abortion, but I mean, even legal abortions can, things can go wrong in the process. It can cause infertility issues later on in life. And I've met women over the years who had abortions when they were teenagers and they thought, okay, I'm just not ready for a child now. And then once they were ready to have a child, then they were unable to conceive. So it's, there is a chance. It's a small risk, but there is a chance that you can land up with future infertility or fertility issues. And your risk for breast cancer increases with abortion as well. So some studies say it's as high as 30% increase your chances of breast cancer because of abortion. So because it, it messes with your hormones, basically. So there are the, the physical dangers, okay? Then when it comes to the psychological component of abortion, I would say that somebody should not have an abortion because I'm a post-abortion counselor. And also just looking at studies and just looking at science, it will show you that women who have had abortions suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or increased risk for eating disorders and suicidal tendencies. And there is something called post-abortion syndrome that women struggle with after abortions where they regret their abortions and they feel so much shame after their abortions. So 
Depression is a big one as well that happens after abortion for for many, many women. And you will have women out there who will say, no, I didn't experience these feelings. I didn't experience the depression. But it's it's very far and few between. And often those women will have something trigger them later on in life, like when suddenly when they become a granny or something, it triggers. And then they realize what they had done as wrong and they actually do regret it. Yeah. So that is the the psychological reason I would say no. And then the spiritual component of why I say somebody shouldn't have an abortion is because I believe abortion is wrong because the Bible says you shall not murder and ab- aborting a child is murder. Plain and simple, it's murder. It's not something that people like to hear, but, you know, it is what it is. But at the same time, shouting to people who've had abortions and calling them murderers isn't what we want to do either because it makes people very defensive and post-abortive women like myself, it's not something that we like to hear, that we are murderers. So it is also something that you need to choose your words wisely when engaging with people and show love and compassion when dealing with the issue as well. And something we're going to talk about a little bit later is why is the church so silent about the topic of abortion? And I do think that this is one of the reasons, but we'll get into that later. So right. those are my, my reasons why I say. Melissa, I wanted to ask you if you agree, as many describe it, that it is murder. And yet again, so many people have abortions because of ignorance and they don't have this information, exactly the things that we're talking about now. Do you think it's a cultural issue as well? Or, or does this apply, this taboo of, of abortion, even though? Let me state very clearly, in South Africa, according to the laws of this country, abortion on demand is legal. The Termination of Pregnancy Act that was uh, put into law in 97. But do you think that ignorance plays a role and that it's a taboo for all nations all over the earth, no matter what the laws of that country says? Well, I think that there is a lot of misinformation out there and I think that there's a lot of propaganda that is wanting to make abortion look like it's nothing more than just going to have a tooth removed because the abortion industry, I mean, if you, if you break it down, their, their focus isn't, the abortion industry isn't trying to help people. That's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to make money. They don't care about your feelings or your baby. They care about their money. That's that's what abortion is all about, is money. And there's a movie that very clearly illustrates this. It's called Unplanned, if people out there can can see it and try and find the movie. And that also exposes the abortion industry as being a money machine. They just want money. So with regards to the information out there, it will be very pro-choice kind of information where they don't want mothers to know that they're babies are babies right from the beginning and they don't want women to to feel this kind of guilt after abortions because they don't they don't want it to seem like it's a big deal to have an abortion otherwise people won't have abortion with regards to culture you know every culture around the world is completely different yet we have this global thing of the of abortion and i think it also just boils down to human nature and the flesh our fleshly nature you know we're we're broken and sinful as human beings and then engaging in sexual activities that that people just shouldn't because it's very rare that abortion is actually required for cases of rape. 
it's it's only two percent. The other ninety eight percent is because people had unprotected sex and now they have an unwanted pregnancy. With cultural taboos, each culture is different. I mean, with regards to the to the African culture as well, I I don't think they they talk about um, these kind of things around the dinner table. And I mean, I come from a, a Afrikaans background, and also it is a very taboo topic. As I suppose each country is different, but yeah. I know in South Africa it is legal for 14-year-olds to have sex within the 14 to 16-year-old bracket. So a 14-year-old may have sex with a 16-year-old, but not have sex with a 17-year-old. So as long as both partners are between the ages of 14 and 16, it's actually legal. So, I mean, that is feeding the abortion machine and feeding the abortion problem that they would even legalize something like that Mm. in our country, which is... It's been legal for quite a few years now. I mean, this blows my mind. I can't even believe that the government would legalize this. It makes no sense to me at all how somebody who is way too immature Mm. to think about being a parent should be allowed to engage in sexual activities that can make them a parent. In your understanding, and I think you've touched on that, when does life in the womb become a human being? Those listening uh, this morning, when does life in the womb become a human being. What does the Bible teach according to your understanding? Where does life begin? Life begins at conception, which means when the sperm and the egg meet, um, not when the, the the baby or the fetus, as I call it, becomes is three months old or two weeks old or whatever. It's right from the beginning, even if it doesn't look like a human straight away, even though it looks like a, a round, strange little thing in the beginning, it's still a human. And with regards to my understanding of the Bible, I mean, there's a story where Mary was pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. And it says, and the baby, it leaped. It, it leaped when it recognized Jesus. So the first to, to recognize Jesus was an unborn baby. Yeah. And that, that speaks volumes about, I, I mean, a fetus recognizing a fetus. It it speaks volumes about, it wouldn't be in the Bible if it wasn't of importance, that yeah. something so small had such a, such a important message. And, you know, Jesus also said, let the children come to me. Jesus really loved children. And, and the Bible says in Proverbs as well, speak for those who cannot speak. So in my understanding of the Bible, I've seen quite a few scriptures. There's quite a few different pro-life scriptures that are out there. And I mean, if you also, I mean, abortion is in in the old days, in the Bible times, it yeah. was it was human sacrifice. So, yeah. you know, they speak of those who would give their children to to Moloch and 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 sacrifice their children to Baal and all that. So, yeah. abortion is also, I mean, on the the modern day sacrifice, it would be on the altar of convenience. It's that people don't want to have a baby right now. It's not convenient. So yes. they may not think of it as, okay, I'm having an abortion now because I want to sacrifice my child to Baal. But even within, within Satanism, if you look into Satanism and into that, into the occult, yeah. um, human sacrifice and blood sacrifice is something that's very important to them. So abortion I mean, there's a whole spiritual component that we can talk about. And if you really go and you, and you look into this and you look into the history and go look in the Bible and the Old Testament and all that stuff about human sacrifice, you can, you can see 
at the root of it, it's it's very dark and very demonic. Yeah. And because it's murder and blood sacrifice. Absolute mind blowing. It's been said that aborted babies go to heaven. Why then is abortion wrong? Well, you can say that pastors um, are going to heaven, and then you can say, well, let's walk into a church and shoot everybody. I mean, we are not God. We don't get to decide who lives and who dies. Only God can make that decision, and we are playing God when we decide who lives and who dies. If God clearly hates abortion, why does he allow miscarriages, in your understanding? Well, God is being God in that situation. Um, it's not us taking the life of the baby with a miscarriage. It's God taking the life of, of the baby. And I mean, God does things that we don't understand. And the Bible says his ways are not our ways. And we don't always understand the things. But Proverbs also says, lean not unto your own understanding. It's not always for us to understand why God does things. But with regards to, to miscarriage and abortion, there have been testimonies of people who have gone to heaven and come back and they have seen those babies who who they lost through abortion or miscarriage and they're they're there in heaven so the hope for us who have lost children to abortion or miscarriage is that someday we will be reunited with them i think that's very comforting to know especially for women who have lost a child um, in miscarriage initially in the beginning lots and lots of the opinion polls lots of surveys lots of marches life chains etc but the church has grown fairly quiet on this do you agree with that and and why would that be or not I definitely think the church has um, become quiet. I think that people are scared to stand up because they might have people leaving the church because they may offend people because sitting in their congregation are people who are post-abortive. And I mean, the stats in America I've read is that one in three women in the church have had an abortion, not outside the church, inside the church. So There's a lot of women inside church who have had an abortion um, because they found out that they were pregnant and they just wanted to quickly get rid of the problem without anybody finding out. So it's the dirty secret and they don't want anybody to know. And I mean, many women have never told anybody that they've had an abortion before. I've spoken at events before where and where old ladies have come to me, I mean, ladies in their 60s and 70s, and they take my hand with tears in their eyes and they say to me, I've never told anybody this, but when I was 18, I had an abortion, or when I was 21, I had an abortion, or my mother forced me to have an abortion, or whatever the case may be. But there's a lot of women in the church who are hurting because abortion is a very complex thing for a post-abortive woman, okay? A woman who's had an abortion, she feels sadness and regrets and and loss, but then yeah. she feels she doesn't have the privilege to feel sadness for the baby because she feels responsible that the baby's not there. And, I mean, think about a woman who has a miscarriage. Everybody gathers around her and and comforts her and loves her through her pain. With an abortive woman, there's nobody there for her because she doesn't tell anybody because she feels so ashamed. So it's a very lonely thing as well for women who have had uh, who are post-abortive. So I think people are scared to talk about it in church because they may offend people. And I think it's a, there's a very delicate way that you have to deal with post-abortive as well, with post-abortive women. You can't call them murderers and be very hard with them like that um, for them to come to a place of repentance. They need to come to that place on their own as well. You specialize in counseling these women as well, don't you? Yes, I do. 
and I use a abortion recovery program called The Journey. So I have done the course. I am a pregnancy counselor as well. But um, my focus is more on post-abortive women than actual pregnancy counseling for people who find out that they're in an unwanted pregnancy. But yeah, I do this on WhatsApp. And I was actually doing it on WhatsApp even before lockdown and before COVID. Just because I find it effective because women can contact in their own time when it suits them. And because it's less invasive, it's less scary to talk to somebody on the phone or via WhatsApp than it is to see somebody face-to-face yes. and have to confess that you've had an abortion. So I find it to actually be quite effective. If you read the Bible, I don't know how you can try and justify abortion while looking at Scripture. I can't see how that's possible, but that's just that's just my opinion. Melissa, in closing, uh, if somebody wants to contact you, find out more about your organization, uh, chat to you on WhatsApp, get hold of your social media platform, contact details, etc., Facebook page, and so on and so forth where can they get all of you there's a facebook page project life pro life south africa that they can follow and they can go on uh, youtube and find my abortion testimony there are two different versions of it if they want to have a look at that so um that's on youtube if you just type in melissa hertz and then my contact details for post-abortion counseling it's whatsapp only no calls I cannot answer the phone. I'm homeschooling my kids. Um, so the WhatsApp, I'll respond to you when I'm able to in the same way that the ladies respond to me when they're able to. And it's 082384498. That's 082384498. And um, yeah, I would, I would love to speak to you if you have had an abortion and you regret it and you just need somebody to talk to and walk you through the process of healing, then I am here for you. Melissa Hertz, may God richly bless you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Please note that uh, because of the sensitive nature of this program, the opinions stated in this program is not necessarily that of Radio Puppet or the announcer on duty, but there for you to make an informed decision. Till next time, keep well, God bless you and shalom.